Flint Hill Baptist Church exists to glorify God by gathering, growing, giving, and going in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Find out more at flinthill.net. And praise the Lord. Amen. Man, it's great to be in the house of the Lord this morning. Can we just take a moment and thank Jesus for salvation? Can you put your hands together? Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah! Woo! I was about to have a come apart over here just a moment ago. And I know, I know, I'm the chief cheerleader on the softball team or the volleyball. Where's my girl? There you are. I know, she's scared, she's scared now. I draw attention to her. I do, I do. I'm a celebratory kind of person. I am, and I am. And there's times to be... Praise the Lord, reverence, and, uh, but man, there's times to celebrate before the Lord and just thank Jesus, thank you, Jesus, thank you, Jesus, thank you, Jesus. All right, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, last uh, week, if you were with us, we've been in this Encountering God series for some time, and now we've moved into Acts. Last week was our kind of first Sunday of what we call the Pentecost Encounter, and so this Sunday is going to be part two. Um, I guess, and there might be a part three. I'm not real sure. There's a lot, there's a lot of encountering the Lord in Acts. There really is. Uh, and I know you can say, well, every place in Scripture you encounter the Lord. I get that. But, I mean, it's uh, uh, really awful last week. And I'm not going to preach last week's message by no means. But, you know, it was on the Feast of Weeks. It was on that first day of the week that the Holy Spirit came. He was a promised Holy Spirit. They were waiting, gathering together. Pretty common, about 120 of them at this time. As they were gathering together, Peter would often stand up among them and teach, as, as probably others as well. Uh, but it was on this day, uh, around 9 o'clock in the morning, and, 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 and the Holy Spirit, the promised gift of the Father, comes and overwhelms and fills. Uh, we talked about last week, He baptized them into the body of Christ and filled them with the Holy Spirit. They began the miracle of speaking in tongues that other people knew. Uh, and they became amazed and overwhelmed. Um, and at the end of uh, uh, verse 12, chapter 2, verse 12, the people were amazed and perplexed. And they asked one another, what? And I'm going to add the world. What in the world does this mean? Because they could hear in their native tongue these people that didn't, weren't native to their area proclaiming the wonderful works of God in their own native tongue. I don't know. They might have been singing. They might have been shouting. They might have been praising. I don't know what all they were doing. They were declaring it, and the people were hearing it. Uh, some made fun of them. I mean, let's just be honest. The world's always made fun of the movement of God and what God does. And so some made fun of them, and some said they had a little too much wine to drink in that morning. Uh, now, verse 14 is where we're going to pick this up. And when we talk about this second part two, or whatever, the Pentecost encounter, what we see now, the Holy Spirit of God comes upon the believers, and then in verse 14, the Bible says that Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. And so the first thing that I want us to see this morning, there is Holy Spirit-filled witnessing taking place. And in this moment, Peter begins to address the crowd, and he says, fellow Jews, all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain all this to you. In other words, the Holy Spirit now, in this moment, is anointing Peter to preach, to proclaim, to explain all of what's happening in this moment. And what I love about this, in just a moment, I mean, it's a beautiful passage of Scripture. 
And let me, let me just say this. This is Peter. Now, I know he'd been walking with Jesus for about three years, and he'd been learning and gleaning from him. He'd already been teaching him, and maybe some of these passages he's about to bring from recollection at this moment might have been stuff he had heard Jesus talk in those three years they were together. But let me remind you who Peter is. He is a fisherman by trade. Later on, it's been mentioned he is an unschooled, ordinary person. I'll be honest, he's rough around the edges. I don't know if you know anybody like that, but I mean, they are. He's rough. He's impulsive, kind of says things. Even him and Jesus got into it at one time. I mean, I mean, he gets into it with Peter, I mean, with Paul and other people later on. I mean, he's, he's that kind of guy. And in this moment, I want, you, I want to say this because, man, when God the Holy Spirit gets hold of someone's life, God will use them and remind them and anoint them to even proclaim the wonderful works of God even in that present day in the first century, and he'll still do it today. I, I say that to me and you. I, I think sometimes we think to be used of God, we got to be a certain way. Like we kind of classify, if you're this person, then God will use you greatly. But listen, friend, I'm telling you, God will use you right now. If you know Christ personally as your Lord and Savior, God has a plan and a purpose for you. For you right now. Way beyond owning a business. Way beyond your vocation right now as a school teacher or whatever it is the Lord's called you to do. God's got a plan for you and a purpose for you. Some of you might be retired, whatever that means. Huh? I hope some of you are like Caleb, 80 years old, say, give me that mountain. Go get it. God's not done. If there's breath in your body, there's time to work and serve and proclaim and witness the wonderful things of God. So anyway, Peter stands up among them. And let me just say, God just gets hold of him and reminds him of Joel chapter 2. Verse 28 through 32. So let me just pick up there in verse 17. Because he begins to proclaim to them what this is really all about. And he goes back to the prophecy in the Old Testament. He said, and he quotes, In the last days God said, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. All people. Your sons, your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above, signs on earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I mean, he just quotes the word. Unschooled, ordinary fishermen. In this moment, anointed, filled with the Holy Spirit of God, God brings back to his remembrance this word. No doubt he had heard it before. No doubt. Maybe he had heard it many a times. Maybe Jesus specifically said, I'm a, what's going to happen is going to be a fulfillment of this. Let me remind us in John 14, 26, the role of the Holy Spirit in our life is to remind us of everything that God, that Jesus taught us. Everything in this word, he reminds us, bring to our, brings back to our remembrance. And we see this being lived out in Peter's life right now. So he proclaims. Now, you've got to remember his audience was mainly a Jewish audience. They would have known full well the prophecy in the Old Testament. And this was not the only time proclaimed. Jeremiah even has said, there's coming a day where there's going to be a new covenant, one that's going to be made in you personally. You don't have to go to others and know the Lord. You're going to know Him personally and intimately. The fulfillment of these, this prophecy in the Old Testament. Josh McDowell, if you ever read any of his works, he wrote a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. If you know his story, he was an, a professed atheist for many years, 
And then he got kind of obsessed with studying the Scripture. And he was a mathematician, so he began to literally look at all the places in what we call the Old Testament that pointed to Christ. His life, His death, His resurrection. And over and over again, the, the multitude of places in the, the, what we call the Scriptures, the Old Testament. He said, he said, this was what God used this in his life. He said, it's mathematically impossible for this one man in this one place to fulfill all these things that were written about him unless it's true. A miracle of God. And so on this day, Peter does what Peter should do in a Jewish audience. He's going to quote the Old Testament. He brings out Joel. And, and in the book of Joel, he proclaims, he says, Why are you amazed at this? You've already heard this before. Maybe this was a familiar passage in the Feast of Pentecost, in the Feast of Weeks. Maybe the, the priest often read from this in this moment. So in this moment, and he says, look, this is what was spoken. Maybe he was resonating with the crowd around him and speaking a language they understood. And they said, oh, yes, we've heard this. We've heard this. Now it's come to fulfillment in this moment. Not only does he bring out the prophecy of the Old Testament, the prophetic word here, but then he kind of lays out the proof. So the Holy Spirit in this moment raises him up and anoints him to speak about the proof or the evidence that Jesus Christ really rose from the dead. And so here he is. The first thing he does is he points to, in verse 22, the person of Jesus Christ. Verse 22, it says, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. He had been walking for three years. This was not a private ministry. Very public. In fact, in his last days, the crowds and crowds and crowds of people followed him. Why? Everybody began to hear about this Jesus. Now, a lot of them had alternative motives. You know, when they were marching to Jerusalem, he was thinking he was going to take over the place. Remember, Zacchaeus couldn't even get to him, right? The crowds of people, the lame person that was screaming, Son of David, have mercy on me, couldn't even get to him because the crowds were so great. There was a real following. I mean, multitudes of multitudes of people had heard about this Jesus who they claimed to be the Messiah. And so he was, he was so, so, so the first evidence was this, was what? He appeals to the person of Jesus himself. This man, you know him. This isn't some vague mystery. This isn't somebody that was hidden in a closet somewhere. You know him. You walked with him. You saw him. You know where he lived, where he grew up. You know everything. He's a man of a man. So he appeals to the reality of that, and which, is, which is important. He says, you know him. And then he goes on to say what? He says this in verse, look, 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 a little bit later on, he says, He was accredited to you by miracles and wonders, which he did among you. Verse 23, this man was handed over, here in verse 23, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. Now we come to it back to the plan of redemption, the plan of God outlined in Scripture. It was set before the foundations of the world. He had this plan in motion. But then he goes on, he says, And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. They saw that happen. This wasn't done as... They, they, he, he says he's appealing to not only his life, but even his death. He said, you saw him hanging on a tree. You saw the agony of his death. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. That phrase, agony of death or pains, means literally uh, uh, alliterates or, or, or illustrates that of birth pains. 
Which might suggest, here it is, that the tomb was more of a womb. Which Jesus was born in resurrection glory. There was pain, there was suffering, but there was a purpose behind it. The miracle of God was the resurrection. The world that watched it, well, he's dead, he's gone, he's buried. Mm -mm. God said, I'm not done yet. We just sang about it. But it came through the pains, that's what he says, the agony of death. The pains there produced, the pain of death produced what? This freeing of him, this birthing of him into resurrection glory. Now, I haven't ever personally had a baby, y'all know that. I've been there when, when a couple of few of mine were born. And I can testify based on what I saw and heard, it can be very painful. But when the baby's born, there's an overwhelming joy. Joy. I mean, you're going to see it a little bit later on. The agony, the pain, the suffering. Yes, for a moment, but when he's birthed out of that womb, that tomb, it's unquenchable joy, gladness and sincerity of heart. And the people of God. All right, so he appeals to the person. Not only that, but just a little bit later on, he appeals as proof to the prophecy of David. Now, look at here. Here he is again. The Holy Spirit of God is reminding him, recollecting, bringing forth the word of God, almost quoting verbatim Psalm 16, 8 through 11. He says, I saw the Lord always before me. This is David. Because he is at my right hand, and I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will always live in hope. Because he will not abandon me to the grave, nor will he let your Holy One, probably capitalized in your Bible, see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will fill me with joy in your presence. He, he appeals to David's own prophetic proclamation, and, in, and he interprets that. goes on, verse 29. Right, he said, brothers, I can tell you with confidence that our patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here today. Go look at it. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised an oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. The messianic prophecy. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke about the resurrection. That's what he's claiming in this way. He spoke about the resurrection of Christ. That he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. Verse 32, God has raised this Jesus to life. And we are all witnesses of this fact. The prophecy, I mean, he pulls back. And I will say to you again, the, prof, the prophetic word of the Old Testament is now living in fulfillment in the resurrection. Not only the death, but in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he appeals to that in this moment. He's trying to explain everything that's happening in this moment. He goes on to say, not only is it the person or the prophecy, but now the witness of believers. He says it here in verse 32 and 33. Exalted to the right hand of God, he's... He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has now poured out what you now see and hear. And why does He pour out that Spirit on believers? For one reason, that we can be witnesses to the reality that Jesus, yes, He died on the cross, but thanks be to God, He rose according to the Scripture on the third day and He lives forevermore at the right hand of the Father. And how do we know that? Because God the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in our heart. Because He lives, hallelujah, I can live today. 
Because God the Holy Spirit resides in this body. Yeah, and it's a, it's, a, it's a mystery among mysteries. Why would God ever so want to dwell inside of me or you? Good night. You know why? Because He thinks that much of me and you. Lord, I know I get loud sometimes and I get a little crazy, but I'm telling you, you are valuable and worth immeasurably more than you can ever under understand. God creator created me and you just like you are. Thanks be to God. There's only one of you in this world. Amen? How do we know that? Because God, very God, Holy Spirit of God, resides within us right now. To God be the glory. Holy Spirit filled. Children of God. So He appeals to that. We're witnesses. We tell others. We're empowered. Not only is it the person and the prophecy and the witness, but now the presence, the presence of the Holy Spirit that's being poured out today. And he appeals to this, to this kind of logic. Wiersbe kind of breaks this down for us. In, this, in these few verses here, Peter's appealing to this logic. In other words, the prophecy proclaimed the Holy Spirit would be poured out. Jesus promised to send the Holy Spirit. Here it is. Jesus must be alive because he couldn't send the Holy Spirit if he wasn't. So he, he sends the Holy Spirit. He also must have returned to heaven. Why? Because he said, because so the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, the gift would come. Thus quoting Psalm 110.1 as evidence. And he says here, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's what he's spoken of, of Jesus, the resurrected one. So he appeals to this, the proof of it. I mean, it's just beautiful, is it not? I mean, I know we read this scripture. You've read it many, many times. It just is amazing to me how God uses ordinary Peter. And I'm not trying to slight Peter at all. Look, listen, he is a leader among leaders in the first century. And God used him amazingly and greatly. I mean, thank you, Lord. But if I, I really, I, I, you know, sometimes we have this like nostalgic view of the people in the scriptures, I think sometimes. I think if Peter was here, he'd be extremely humbled by the fact that God would use somebody like him. I think if he, if he really testified before us today, he'd say, you know, uh, I really wasn't much. He would, he would talk about his upbringing and say, man, I was just a working man. Blue collar. I just worked hard for a living. Then one day this Messiah came and called me out. I mean, he had no idea. He had no idea when he left them nets behind that one day he'd be standing up among the people of God in this moment at the Feast of Weeks at the Pentecost proclaiming, proclaiming. Not only did he die, but he rose again and now the Holy Spirit's come and filled our hearts, our lives. And here it is on this day. Who would have thought on this day 3,000 people come to faith in Christ in this moment? Leads me to this, not only the proof, but the purpose. Why, why does the Holy Spirit come? It's real simple. The purpose is Holy Spirit conviction. God never intended me or you to do what we do on our own. In fact, I can almost guarantee if you're doing it on your own, probably not going to be worth much. Probably not going to be of any value eternally. Now, you can keep rolling. You can keep doing what you're doing. But if it's of any eternal value, it's got to be Spirit-led, Spirit-filled, Spirit-empowered in everything that we do. And I know it preaches well, and that sounds good, but I mean that sincerely. Sincerely. The shame on this side of glory would be to live your life forever thinking you're making an eternal difference, and you're not. How do we know we are? Holy Spirit-filled conviction. I love this. 
when he proclaims all of this, verse 36, Therefore let all of Israel be assured of this. Here it is. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. King James says they were pricked in the heart. They were pierced into the heart. The Holy Spirit conviction, taking the Word of God and bringing it to life in the moment. Quickened their heart, penetrated their heart, pierced their heart in this moment. It leads them to this conclusion. All they can say in this moment, what should we do? There's a moment when the Holy Spirit convicts the heart of a person. And I will speak on this side. Before you come to faith in Christ, before as, a, as someone who might be like these Jews gathered around, you might have heard something, you might have been a little religious, you might have been somebody just showing up on the action that day. But in that moment, the Holy Spirit convicts this heart, these hearts all around Him. The only thing they could do, listen, it's not your pedigree anymore. It's not how, how much money you have. It's not where you come from, your societal status. When you come to Jesus, when the Holy Spirit convicts your heart, you come clean and you go, Lord, help me. What do I need to do? I can't do this on my own. You can't be saved in your own strength. And they're cut to the heart. I'm so thankful God the Holy Spirit still cuts us to the heart today. I would submit to you, we need that. The shame is that we gather and meet, sing, preach, study, and there's no conviction of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes I think we resist the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Listen, that's a cleansing. That, that's a, that's a, not, a, not just something that leads us to salvation, but as a believer in Christ, it's a good thing for a Holy Spirit to convict me. It's evidence that I'm real. I mean, honestly, that's, I mean, if there's no conviction in your heart, then again, go back to what Paul said. You might want to examine yourself. But sometimes we shy away from it. So there is Holy Spirit conviction. This is the purpose. This is why what's happening is happening. What I love this in this moment, when the Holy Spirit convicts, Peter responds. It's, it's almost like, in that there's this dialogue going on with all these people in this moment. He is just proclaiming that Jesus died, rose again. The Spirit of God has come confirming all this. This is what's going on in the life. It's a wonderful, wonderful moment. They're cut to the heart. Peter doesn't expect it. He really doesn't know what to expect. All of a sudden, they're cut to the heart. They're screaming out, what do we do? What do we do? And I love it. Here again, the Holy Spirit leads him. Real clear. It's real simple. He says, repent. Repent. And that's the first word. Repent. That means to turn away from. Turn away from what? Unbelief. Turn away from, I don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. Turn away from uh, not believing that he, His life and His death was an atoning sacrifice. Turn away from the fact that you think you can save yourself. Turn, turn to the reality that we are all falling short of the glory of God. That we all are in need of a Savior. Turn to that faith. Turn to the faith that says that He, yes, lived, yes, died. And yes, rose again. And He took my place. That's what the Bible says. He's an atoning sacrifice. He was that lamb that had to be slaughtered once and for all for the sins of the world. There is no one. There is no place for salvation yet through the blood of Jesus Christ alone. 
So when he says repent, turn away from yourself. Turn away, but turn to. I mean, connected in that word, it's not just feeling sorry for yourself. It's turning to intentionally, trusting in, believing in Jesus alone for salvation. It's not even your church attendance. It's not how much money you give. He alone is the source, the only one, the only place where salvation is found. The only one. And he says, turn to him. He says, repent, turn away from this, but turn to him. Believe in him. Trust in him. That's what's wrapped up in that word. And he says, be baptized. I will will tell you this. To be identified, that's what it means. It means to repent and and be identified with. That's the context there. In other words, water baptism doesn't save you. Water baptism isn't what frees you from sin. It's faith in Christ alone. But let me say this. If you're a believer here today and you've trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've come under the blood of Christ, you believe in Him, make it public. Water baptism is a public profession of the reality of what has happened inside of me. Turn to the Lord. Right? Make it public. That's what He's saying. And then now in the context, go back to the first century. Thousands of people are there. People from all over. 15 different regions. Many of them Jewish heritage, but they've been spread out all over the place. And he's saying, look, right now, right here, just be identified with the Messiah. Be identified. How do we do that? Water baptism. Let's go ahead. Be submerged. Buried. 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 But raised to walk in a brand new life. Be identified with the risen Savior. So he says that. He says you ought to repent and be baptized. And then he talks about the evidence of true faith. What, what, what does that mean? He says, look, he says this. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sin. And what? You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Praise be to God. That's a work of God. It's called regeneration. It's called conversion. It's called when someone turns to Jesus Christ personally as their Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit of God indwells them. Personally, practically, evidentially. In other words, there's no mistake when God the Holy Spirit comes in. Yes, can we grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? Can we, yes. Can we grow in knowing Him? Yes, just like we would know anybody in a relationship. Can we come to know His leading, His guiding, His direction? Yes, 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 yes. But make no mistake. All children born again, Jesus would say born from above. Remember we had that conversation with Nicodemus? Have been birthed from above Birthed from above by the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. No mistake. As real as your physical birth was, and I know you probably don't remember it, probably got pictures. Maybe in a video. Got to be careful with that. There's no mistake in you were born. The evidence demands a verdict. There should be no mistake in that you're born again. The evidence demands a verdict. Holy Spirit filled. How, how do we know that we experience true faith? The presence of God, the Holy Spirit in our lives. All right, so what I love about this, on the heels of this, is a familiar passage, 42 through the rest of uh, 47, the rest of chapter 2. And I'm going to say, we're going to turn now to what we call Holy Spirit filled living. And I hope you hear me loud and clear. It's all about God, the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit indwelling us. God, the Holy Spirit leading us. God, the Holy Spirit guiding us. 
bringing us together, doing everything that God intends us to do. We can't do it on our own. We're absolutely depending on Him, trusting in Him to do what only He can do. Now, that being said, when we talk about Holy Spirit living, verses 42 through 47 give us a picture of what the early church, the body of Christ, was doing in this moment. MacArthur makes this statement about this passage. passage. This was really a church, nothing more, nothing less. Its life was completely defined by devotion to those spiritual things that we're about to talk about that make up the unique identity of what we call the church, the body of Christ. This body of Christ here in the first century did not have any cultural elements of success. You, you, you know that, right? They didn't have a lot of worldly strategies, yet they were still endowed with every necessary component for accomplishing the purposes of God. They didn't lack one thing in doing and being all that God wanted them to be. And I will make this statement. I agree with MacArthur. The church today is still effective in bringing sinners to Christ when it manifests the same elements we're about to talk about that mark this first fellowship. We talk about being a church, a body of Christ. What does that mean? First and foremost, Holy Spirit living means they were passionate. The first word in verse 42, it says, they, they, who are they? Those born-again ones, those spirit-filled believers, they were devoted, continued steadfastly. This is a word that describes their demeanor. They were genuine believers that remained faithful, true, passionate. Now, I know everybody's got a temperament. I've already told you I'm a chief cheerleader on the volleyball team, softball team, probably any team if I'm watching. But I hope we're passionate about Jesus. I hope so. I hope people around us can see that we really love the Lord. Whoever it is, might be your wife, might be your kids, might be your grandkids, might be your co-workers, your fellow students at the high school, or you might be homeschooled. It doesn't matter where you are, who you are. I hope people can look into our lives and see we are passionate about Jesus. But there are several things here. He lays out real quickly here. What are they passionate about? First and foremost, it says the apostles' teaching, the scriptures. In fact, we would say this is foundational. I know, I know, I know. Please, please open those ears up and hear me. First Peter 2, 2 says this, like newborn babies. We talked a lot about birth, like a newborn baby. Y'all remember that? Long for pure milk of the word. Why? Because by the eating, the digesting of the Word of God, we grow, we grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. There really is no other way. There's other elements to that, but friend, if we're not people of the Word, if God's Word is not taking root in our heart, you're, we're going to struggle in this Christian life. First and foremost, they were passionate, they were devoted, they continued steadfastly in the Scriptures, the Apostle teaching. N number two was this, the fellowship. The word there in the Greek is koinonia. That's a fancy word. It means partnership or sharing. In other words, when God birthed this body of Christ, when the Spirit of God filled them, they all of a sudden, by Christ themselves, by the Spirit of God in them, became connected to every child of God around them. They shared now this incredible relationship. And this is a mystery. That Jesus in me is, loves the Jesus in you. I mean, that's a, that's a beautiful picture. How do we walk in this fellowship? How do we love one another? Because Christ, it's not in my own strength. Good night. It's because Christ in me and Christ in you can helps us. 
to live this shared life. We, you know, people talk about the grace life, right? We talk about the koinonia, the fellowship. And yeah, we're going to eat some food today. Y'all know that, right? It's way beyond eating food. Y'all know what I'm talking about? I mean, it's a way beyond. It's an eternal, it's an eternal beauty that we begin to experience here. And I can honestly testify to you, and thanks be to God for the body of Christ. And I, and I can't help, even as preparing for today, I thought about the, the body of Christ in the Philippines that I came to know. Or in Belize. Or in Wales. Or in Uganda. Or in Cleveland. Or in Shelby County. In Mobile. The body of Christ is beautiful. And wonderful, and she's glorious, and we're all a part of it. By the grace of God, we have the joy of partnering together, sharing life together, sharing life together. There's just a joy that comes through that. Not only are they passionate about this fellowship, but they're passionate about the breaking of bread. I know this is bad. My mind drifts sometimes. I can't, I can't, when every time I hear about breaking bread, I think about them yeast rolls that I used to get at the restaurant. I know, I don't know. We probably don't have any yeast rolls over there for the chili, but you know, I like to eat. I do, I do. Um, and, and they did eat together, they shared meals together. I mean, just like Jesus went into Zacchaeus' home and shared a meal with him, spent some time with him. It was a very different culture than maybe what we... Now, we eat together t- today, but we eat fastly. You know what I'm saying? We, 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 we run somewhere, eat something, and go home. In their culture, it would have been customary. If you're going to go share a meal with somebody, you spent pretty much the day with them. They, you spent the day, you lingered there. Or in Jesus' case, most people believe he spent the night with Zacchaeus and got up the next day. Right? So he lingered there. And so, so part of this breaking the bread is this eating together. But specifically, most commentators, when they see this breaking of the bread, would have been a reference to celebrating the, what we call the Lord's Supper or communion. The breaking of that bread would have reminded them of the body of the Lord Jesus Christ broken on the cross. That his body was broken, that our body could be healed. Literally. And so it would have been a, a, a reference to remembering. In other words, they continued to celebrate the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord. Specifically the atoning death that he died. He died for us. I mean, we just, we just sang that song. Jesus paid it all. Can we not get past that, church? That's a core element of what we call the gospel. If you, if you move past Jesus paid it all, then what do you have? You don't have the gospel anymore. And let me say that's a good thing to be reminded of because life doesn't begin until you acknowledge that and accept that and believe that personally for yourself. And, and there's no assurance of heaven outside of the gospel and His death on that cross. The blood of Jesus so what does that do? Why do we? Why do they? And by the way, we're commanded to remember this and to and, and to remember the bread and to, and to have moments where we break bread together, the communion and the Lord's supper. Why do we do that? What happens when we do that? We we're reminded of how humble we are before God. That this salvation is not from me, but it's by God's grace and His grace alone. It it, it humbles me and and exalts God. 
Every time I've seen and partake of that Lord's Supper, those two elements, if they're not happening, we're struggling at remembering what the Lord did. It ought to humble us before the Lord. We ought to come before Him with great gratefulness and thanksgiving when we remember all that He did for us on the cross. He stood in our place. He took upon His flesh the wrath of God on sin for me and you. And it humbles us, but it also magnifies the Lord. It's a beautiful thing. God in His grace stepped out of heaven and came down to earth for one reason, and that's to save me and you. I, I, I could go on and on how, how important you are to the Lord, how valuable. How, he, he went to the cross so that He would know you and you would know Him for all eternity. Think about that. That's how much He loves you. That's how, how much He wants to spend time fellowshipping with you. So, so not only do we, does it humble us, but it proclaims His wonderful work on the cross. It also... When we break bread together, it also calls, and the Scripture reminds us, it calls for us to self-examine ourselves. I mean, the truth is, living a Christian life doesn't mean that you're perfect. There's not a person in here that's a perfect Christian, never has, never will be. And thanks be to God for God's grace and salvation and God's grace in, in daily living. And, and to come before the Lord and to be honest and sincere and repent and say, God, examine my heart. I mean, that's a beautiful prayer. It can be very tough at times. But, but when we remember all that God's done, it brings us to that place. You don't have to make that happen. It just happens. All of a sudden, God, the Holy Spirit, inspects this heart and leads us, if we need to, to repent. And that's a beautiful thing. The fourth thing is this. The Bible says, They devoted themselves to apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, breaking bread, and to prayer. I love this statement. Prayer is the slender nerve that moves the muscle of omnipotence. Praying, praying, God's people praying moves the hand of God. It's not that I'm guilting Him or trying to make it a court, but I'm just telling you, God has created us to be dependent on Him. He is pleased when we are crying out to Him, asking Him to do what only He can do. That's a beautiful posture as a Christian and as a personally and for a fellowship. And the early church knew this, and so they were passionate. They were passionate about praying together. Blackaby makes this statement, prayer is not a substitute for hard work, it is work. If any of us have really put our hands in, to labor in prayer, it's work. Now I'll remind us, as he says, God does things in and through our lives by prayer that he does in no other way. Now this might sting. If you don't sense the Holy Spirit's power in your life, we may not be spending adequate time in prayer. couple things else. Not only, not only were they passionate about these things, but there was a fear. The Bible says everyone was filled with awe. The word there is fear. The root is reverence or awe. It refers to fear or a holy terror related to a sense, a sense or an awareness of God's divine presence among us. So they walked in the reality that God is with us day to day, every moment. Not just when we gather together, but when I went out and engaged other people, God's presence is with us and it brought forth a sense of reverence and awe. How do we know this? Miraculous signs were done and wonders were done. God's church was empowered by God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit worked miracles after miracle in the life of the early church. And let me say today, and I believe this with all my heart, God still works miracles today. I know some people say, no, 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 we don't have miracles today. Friend, I'm telling you, I've, listen, I've seen people that were on the deathbed and God raised them up. Now, no, I, He doesn't raise everybody up out of that deathbed, but I've seen it. 
Have you ever seen a child born, birth? I mean, it's a miracle, miracle of God. Have you ever seen one born again? Child born again, whoever, adult, doesn't matter. It's a miracle of God. Maybe it's how we define miracles. I really believe God still works miracles today. God will come through. I believe God does more things for us than we probably even understand and realize as we walk through this thing called life. The, the wonderful presence of God brings that forth. There was not just an awe and a reverence, but there was a oneness. Just a telltale sign of the early church. The Bible says all believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods. They gave to anyone as he had need. Oneness was the fulfillment of Jesus' prayer in John 17. When the Holy Spirit took up resonance in the hearts of the believers, it bound them together to be one. They possessed not only a spiritual unity, but also a practical oneness. There were some people who didn't have a lot. So what do we do? We give to help meet that need. Somebody else. I mean, you got to remember, the people from 15 different regions came in there. They needed shelter. They needed food. They, this was not uncommon during the Feast of Pentecost. I mean, thousands of people just came onto the city of Jerusalem. And I mean, people needed a place to stay, a place to eat, bed down for a while. They wouldn't have just stayed a day or two. It could have been a couple weeks they stayed. Now the Holy Spirit doesn't showed up. There's all kinds of things happening. So it lingered for a while. And people opened up their homes. People began to meet needs. People didn't have much, and they started giving. And it's just a beautiful picture of God's people being used by the Lord to just meet needs in the people around them. It's no wonder. It's no surprise that a unified, miraculous, sharing church was also full of great joy. Verse 46, the Bible says, Every day they continued to meet together. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. That noun, that word means glad. It means literally to rejoice together. Man, this church was full of joy. Why? Because they were full of the Holy Spirit reigning and ruling in their life. There was a great oneness there. The last thing is this. They met daily. Now the Bible says they met together daily. Daily. Daily they met in the temple. Daily they shared meals together. Daily they praised God together. Daily they witnessed together. And yes, and the Lord added to their numbers daily. Daily. They were receiving new believers, new people who put their faith and trust in the Messiah. You know why? Because the Holy Spirit is the one who attracts unbelievers to the gospel. They were an attractive fellowship. And they were a growing fellowship because God the Holy Spirit reigning and ruling among His people. Daily they met together. Now I know, you're sitting there going, oh, Jay, I don't know if we can meet daily. Well, yeah, you can. We're not limited by time and space. We can pray together on a daily basis. Good night. We pray all the time. We can join together. And I, and I know in the first century, there was, a, there was a unique thing happening here. And as we walk down this road, it gets kind of fleshed out in one sense. And now here we are some years later. And yes, we meet. We meet on Sunday morning at 9 o'clock for a gathered time. We're going to meet for Bible study in just a moment. We're even going to have a fellowship today and have some food. Right? Can't get any better than this, David. I'll be honest with you. It's a great day. But don't miss this, church. This fellowship, this relationship we have with Christ is a daily relationship. It's a daily, daily walk. It's a daily 
fellowship. It's a daily time of prayer, time to encounter the Word and listening and, and being led by the Holy Spirit. It's daily sharing the good news, witnessing by the power of God. And yes, maybe even daily being able to see people come to faith in Christ. It's beautiful. The Christians that you meet here in the book of Acts weren't content with meeting just once a week for services as usual. They chose to meet daily. They chose to win souls daily. They chose to read the scriptures daily. And you know what God did? Bless them. Increase their numbers daily. Gavin, I'm going to invite you to come on up. We're going to take a moment and respond here. Lots been said here where I'm so grateful for the Word of God. I'm grateful for this encounter at Pentecost. And I know we, you've read this scripture. You've read this scripture. Probably heard it preached before about the Pentecost, the sermon from Peter here on this day, and the, and the body of Christ, the fellowship, how passionate and devoted they were to these things. My friend, more than anything today, I, I, just, I just want us to open up our heart to the Lord just briefly here before we move into Bible study. Just ask the Holy Spirit of God just to examine our heart. Where are we? My hope, my prayer, is that God the Holy Spirit would just light a fire inside of us. That we would just be passionate for the presence and the person of Jesus Christ. For His Word, for His people, for His plan, for His purposes in the world today. Father, we just want to thank You. Thank You, thank You, thank You. Thank You, Lord Jesus. Thank You, Lord Jesus, for the promised Holy Spirit of God, the gift of God that was poured out at Pentecost continues to be poured out, reigning, ruling, empowering, developing and growing the body of Christ. Praise be to God that you haven't left us alone. You haven't left us alone. And right now, right here, we can call upon your name. We can call upon God, the Holy Spirit, to lead, to guide, direct. God, I thank you for your word. God, would you bring it to life? Enlighten our hearts and our minds that we would know you Lord, growing in this relationship with You. Walking in a manner worthy of the Gospel. God, I pray for this fellowship right now. Lord Jesus, have Your way in this time of response. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand to our feet, church. We're going to sing a song of response. Friend, if you're here today, you need to know Christ, you come. You need to unite with this fellowship, you come. You need to be baptized. You come. You need to come to the altar. You come. Make an altar where you are. But respond to the Lord as we sing this together.